hanging out three months out of the year, not working, being happily unemployed. What happened was, is because my daughter was born, I needed to go and do something that was quote unquote, a real job. If you're a data scientist coming into ML ops, you really should spend a lot of time with software engineering and best practices in software engineering. Get good at writing because if you can inspire and affect change through a document that you've written, then you have infinite leverage. If you're building on top of OpenAI, you are very vulnerable because it is a mm. single point of failure. If all of a sudden they fire their CEO and then it turns into a research <laughs> institute again, then you and your company are in a tough place. So I think people are thinking about diversification a lot more than they were even just a week ago. This episode is brought to you by Training Data. If you're new in data science and want to get into the field, or if you're already in the field but want to progress, well, Training Data is the platform for you. They offer courses on feature engineering and selection, model tuning, interpretability, and much more. You will get both the math and the intuition behind each method, but also Python code ready to power your own projects. So if you're interested, visit the link in the description and don't forget to use the codes AI stories to get a 10% discount. All right, Demetrios, so, so excited to have you here with me today. So yeah, tell me a bit more about you. How did you get into this world of AI and MLOps? How did you get into the field? Well, it's great to be here, man. I appreciate you having me on here and... I got into tech uh, first about five years ago when my daughter was born and I could no longer be teaching English as a second language in Spain with no responsibilities and living the dream, hanging out three months out of the year, not working, being uh, happily unemployed. What happened was, is because my daughter was born, I needed to go and do something that was uh, quote unquote, a real job. And so... I had a friend who was working in sales in tech and he said, hey, I think you'd be pretty good at this. You should come. Our company's hiring. And one thing led to another. I became an SDR at his company. And from there, that company had nothing to do with ML or anything. But when I hopped around after a year and a half of being there, I went and I joined another company that was doing this new thing that was called ML ops, kind of, it was just starting to be a term that was thrown around. And this company was doing data lineage. And so in those days, it was incredible to have the power of seeing where your data came from and how it got transformed all along the way. And all the data pipelines. And so if you were using a model and you wanted to have a little bit more insight on the data that your model was trained on or data that you needed for the model, you could have that. But in 2020, that was a very, very early type of tool for, I think, what the market wanted. And so I was in sales at that company. I, I had graduated from being an SDR, but the company ended up 
going out of business. It did a bit of a nosedive. And right before it did that, our CEO who had open source in his blood and he was around in the Docker days back in the day, he said, you know what, maybe we can try and do something around a community. And I think MLOps is this big term. So we should try and do something around an MLOps community. And Everybody said, yeah, that's a great idea. So we had our first virtual meetup right when COVID hit. And then the company went out of business like two weeks later. But mm -hmm. I kept running with this idea of, hey, there's something here. I really enjoy being an organizer in this community. And there's people that are joining the community. There's a lot of energy that's going into it. And so even though I was unhappily employed this time, as opposed to when I was back in my English teaching days, I still thought maybe I should keep going with this. And that was May 2020. And ever since, I've just been interviewing people uh, like yourself and other experts in the field every week for the past three years and learning all about this world. Because in those early days, I had no idea what was going on. And I always like to tell people that if you want to see something very funny, go to the first podcasts or meetups that we recorded. And I was asking questions to <laughs> the guests and I had no idea what they were saying. The responses might as well have been in some alien language because I would just sit there, I would look at the camera for a little bit and then I would nod and go, perfect, and then ask my other question that mm -hmm. I had asked my technical friends <laughs> to give me for the interview. So that was what it was like. Now now we're here. How, how was this transition then from tech to, well, from sales and non-tech world to the tech world? And how did you start to actually learn about MLOps and start understanding the answer that your guests were giving you. <laughs> you uh, have uh, high expectations of me that I now <laughs> understand what the guests are <laughs> saying to me. But basically, the CEO that I had at the time, so in sales, I think anybody that has been in sales or does anything on the go-to-market side, if you understand the product and you understand your user, then you are going to be infinitely better at your job. So if you're in sales and you understand what the pains of the user is, then you're going to be able to speak to them and they're going to feel like you know what you're talking about and you can build that trust. And so even in those early days in sales, I was trying to figure things out, but everything was so new. You know, I remember asking our engineering team, at the company back in those days, what prepositions you use when you talk about Kubernetes. And I was like, and what is this? Like, why is it sometimes Kubernetes? And then other times you put like this eight in it. And then sometimes it's like cube, but I don't know what is going on here. And is it at Kubernetes or is it on Kubernetes? <laughs> and so I got schooled on that real quick. And then I understood also the engineering team was super cool. They explained to me what Kubernetes was, what Docker was, why you need these, why, um, what happens basically when there is the machine learning life cycle and what you need to know the big parts of the machine learning life cycle. And so that was the basic and 
and going from sales, I kind of had a, I didn't have the strongest need to understand. So I was trying to understand, but it wasn't like I needed to kick things into gear. And then once I started putting myself in front of a live audience every week, live virtual audience every week with an expert in the field, then I realized, okay, I can't like bullshit this <laughs> anymore. I have to actually go and figure it out. So I started getting O'Reilly books and trying as hard as I could to understand, reading a lot of blog posts, all that fun stuff. Okay, cool. So what, what would be your recommendations? Like someone who wants to get into MLOps, what kind of books or blog posts do you, do you recommend? So there are incredible books out there, but I think one thing that you have to have clear from the get-go is that if you're a data scientist coming into MLOps, you really should you really should spend a lot of time with software engineering and best practices in software engineering. You don't need to reinvent the wheel just because it's with machine learning. I do, however, think that if you're coming to MLOps, you can come from many different angles. So it needs, there needs to be like a caveat here. I wouldn't recommend the same thing for every person, mm -hmm. depending on what your background is. If you're like, yeah, I got my PhD in physics, then all right, you should probably figure out the coding best practices. But if you're like, yeah, I've been a SRE at Google for the last 10 years, then you need to look at different things and potentially you just need to focus on what is different when data and machine learning is thrown into the mix and models are there and so whatever avenue you're coming from i think that is to be taken into account i also think that if you're looking for resources i have kind of like the golden engineering blogs that I, I look at as whenever they put something out, it's held to a very high, high standard internally, I think. And so they don't release anything unless it's really good. And it's the obvious ones that you probably would think of. I'm sure you have some that are off, like they're on your mind right now, you know, but I'll name a few. I would say Uber, Airbnb, those ones are always quality. Then you have the, I think Instacart is doing some really great stuff with their engineering blog. The hidden kind of champion when it comes to machine learning and engineering blog is the Nubank engineering blog. That one is incredible. Every time I read a blog post from Nubank about machine learning, I'm like, wow, this is so good. They don't put out crap. That's just like their standard is very high. And also DoorDash. DoorDash is a really nice one. So you have all these blogs that I like to follow. And when it comes to books, I mean, there's so many good ones. There's just the basics like designing data intensive applications or you have uh, machine learning design patterns. I, I have to go look at my... my no, but that's shelf, good. But that's already already quite a lot of there's of enough resources. i mean chips book is incredible right mm -hmm. you have uh there's emmanuel almason he has a great book really if you are looking to get oh 
dude, you have to, anybody that's trying to get into MLOps, another one that you really have to read is the one from Ben Wilson. And that is, I think it's machine learning engineering in action or something uh, like that. That is top notch. And Ben Wilson, whenever I get the chance to talk to him, he blows my mind with like five words, you know? So that's great too. Cool, cool. Thanks. So yeah, lots of cool resources that we can go and check out. I think unlike like the MLOps community podcast, I'm not sure how people are actually familiar with MLOps. So I'm sure lots of obvious resources that you shared will be quite new for a lot of people. I don't actually follow many um, MLOps blogs, so I'm going to go and mm. rewatch the recording and have a look at all those resources that you shared <laughs> and there you go. get some knowledge <laughs> nice. around this. Um, you talked about, maybe to introduce the concept of MLOps, you talked about this ML lifecycle. Um, so do you want to talk about this and where MLOps plays a role? Like what's MLOps and where does it play or where does it play a role in this ML lifecycle? Yeah, I look at it as basically everything that is necessary for getting a machine learning model into production. And actually, like, users benefiting, end users benefiting from the machine learning model. So you can look at, like, the front part of it, where it's as early as just collecting the data, and then where you're taking that data and how you're cleaning it, who has access to all that data. That also can be called data ops, right? And that can be a data engineer's job. And potentially it's more of the data platform that is taking over those mm -hmm. different tasks. But then you have the machine learning models that are being built with this data and how they're being built. Depending on what your use case is, you have different machine learning models, you have different types of architectures that you're going to be using. You know, I think it's very different if you're using a computer vision problem versus a time series problem or if it's a recommender system type thing mm -hmm. uh, or if it's now all the rage a uh, large language model right so you have to look at that a little bit differently but then you also need to think about the serving and how you're going to serve the model. So there's creating the model if you're going to create it, or maybe you just grab something if it's a large language model. Uh, that's a little bit of a branch, and we can talk about how that differs uh, because I know LLM ops is all the rage too these days. So that is probably worth exploring. But you have to think about serving, and then you have to think about monitoring and retraining too, and your different pipelines and also your different CI CD pipelines obviously that you're kicking off and how you're looking at all right are we going to promote this model to being a, maybe you have like a AB testing going on with the models or champion challenger and mm -hmm. so that whole thing there is MLOps and and then add a little bit of nuance to it because you also need to be thinking about the system itself and just making sure that the system doesn't go down so that's mm -hmm. why I think there's a little bit of that SRE field that plays mm -hmm. into it and you have the platform. So the platform that the data scientists are using is one thing, 
then the platform that is serving the model and hosting the model, that's another thing, right? Okay, so all all the things relating to putting a model in production. So you've trained your model in your notebook or you've got something that works and now you need to serve the business. And so to summarize what you said, it goes from the data part, like getting the data to the model to putting the model in production, serving it and retraining it and monitoring it. Uh, because once the model is in production, it's not, well, things can still happen, the performance can decrease. And so you actually need to monitor this model and retrain it. Exactly. Actually, um, one of the community members in one of the talks that we had, Andy was saying how for him, MLOps is when you go from one model to N models in production. So getting one model into production, maybe you can get away with some of this, just mm. taking a Jupyter notebook and throwing it into production, right? But going to scale, that's where you really need MLOps practices. And that's where it's going to be the most value. Okay, so when you need to deploy lots of models, monitor all of them, that's when you actually need really good practices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where your processes are going to mm -hmm. come into play and you're going to be able to leverage much more because you have thought about these things and you've made you've operationalized it. So it's not just an ad hoc thing that mm -hmm. maybe you've done some exploration, you found something, but can you reproduce it? Maybe, but now mm -hmm. let's just see if this works, right? And you smile. I imagine you've seen that before. <laughs> it is a lot more common than I think a lot of us would like to hope it is. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's also getting better that people are starting to see the downfalls of that, or maybe they've been burned by that in the past. And so they're trying to figure out how they can operationalize things in a more clean way. You mentioned an interesting point on it's different if you've got a vision model than, well, a traditional model or then a large language model. So do you want to talk a bit about those differences? Um, first of all, between a vision model and a traditional model, and then between those models and LLM ops, and why is it different? Why is LLM ops becoming a thing? Yeah, I think when it comes to like computer vision models, all that labeled data, obviously data is the king in all this, right? And that's becoming painfully clear. Even with large language models, I think people are starting to realize, oh, if I want to fine tune a large language model, I got to have that data and it's got to be clean and it's got to be processed and it's got to be in a state that we can use it and leverage it. And so when it comes to computer vision, you want that data, you want that labeled data, and you're going to be using different tools because the tools that are set up for, for photos or video are inherently different in my eyes than if mm -hmm. you're trying to do some kind of a recommender system or a fraud detection. And mm -hmm. you also look at things in a bit of a different way because do you need what what do you need to optimize for? Those are a bit of the questions that you want to be asking. Do you need to optimize for speed? Like in a fraud detection model, you need to be very fast, right? Same with recommender systems. And I think in your 
the way that you architect a recommender system these they have things like like a vector database and maybe you have a feature store and when you're using a computer vision you or when you have a computer vision use case i don't think that you necessarily see those coming up definitely not a feature store maybe you're using some kind of vector database but a feature store doesn't really come up when it's a computer vision use case right and so how does that work like what are the model architectures that you're using? Are you using deep learning in your computer vision use case? Uh, and so those are the questions that you think about and that you want to be asking yourself, what, what am I trying to optimize for here? Can I do it? I think a lot of things that come up a lot or something that comes up a lot is, can you solve this problem first without machine learning, but then if you are going to use machine learning, can you do it batch or does it need to be real time? And when you say real time, what exactly do you mean by real time? And so batch is going to be much easier than real time. And it, real time just adds a lot more complexities as of now. I know there are a lot of people that are trying to make it easier to do real time, but that's that's the idea there is that you have different choices you have different things that you need to optimize for and because you can get away with a little bit more on each of these use cases you can build your system in different ways okay yeah that makes sense so to real time means um for example uh youtube recommendations like as soon as you're on the page they need to recommend you something so that's what exactly. why it needs to be real time Whereas, I don't know, if you want to build an algorithm that automatically classifies whether it's a cat or a dog, you might not need the algorithm to give you an answer directly, but you take a thousand pictures, um, let's say all the pictures that were taken at, during this day or during this month, and you pass them to your algorithm, and it will classify for all those pictures, but it doesn't give you like the answer in real time. And so exactly. those are the choices that you need to make. Is it going to be real time thing, which is, I guess, more complex, um, or is it going to be batch and uh, there's going to be some some delay? Yeah, yeah. You just have more to think about. And when it is real time, there, because of the extra necessities that you, or extra hoops that you need to mm -hmm. jump through, you need to be thinking about those things. And I find it hilarious because with large language models, you can just basically take real time off the table. I think we've all played enough with ChatGPT <laughs> to know that real time does not exist when it comes to large language models. Like, what do you mean exactly? Like, are they too slow to yeah. answer? Yeah, exactly. It's just way too slow. If you're typing in a question and then it takes three seconds to get back with an answer, that does not work mm -hmm. when most people when they think about real time it's like five to ten mm -hmm. milliseconds and so is the is this a limitation is this ever gonna work for large language models or is it just never gonna be real time well i felt like i was having i felt felt like i was being punked today because i was scrolling linkedin and i think it was intel was saying we've been having so much success with small language models and i was mm -hmm. kind of like wait a minute 
So we're back to where we started. <laughs> Tell me that this is some kind of April Fool's joke because <laughs> we went and we did this full loop and said, all right, large language models, they're the future. That's what we're going to be able to generalize and do so much with AI now. And you have all the people on Twitter talking about how AI is going to change everything. We need to figure out universal basic income right now because the world will never be the same. And then I see this Intel piece getting a lot of attention saying, nope, we're going with small language models. That's what it is. And then you have other people talking about how it's really ensembles of small language models. And that's where you really can find a delta as opposed to these large language models that are, they take a ton of time to train. They take a lot of resources. And so I find, I find that funny. Now, is it going to ever be fast enough? Like is a small language model going to be fast enough to compete with, or in these real time use cases that I don't know. I can't, sadly, I haven't been able to figure out how to read the future yet, but it does it does seem promising, but at the same time, it does seem like it it might not be what we need, you know? Mm -hmm. Like it 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 might not be that extra added value to overcomplicate your architecture by mm -hmm. shoving in a small language model mm -hmm. where you think yeah. it will give you uh, a lift. Yeah, I've tried I've built a couple of apps with large language models using LangChain. And yeah, I, I totally agree with you that that's one of the limitations. Like it takes a couple of seconds, sometimes even, you know, 10 seconds if you want to generate a report or something. And it's a limitation. Maybe that's fine. Like I, I personally don't mind waiting 10, 20 seconds if I get, you know, a long report that's generated, but it's definitely a limitation. And Hopefully, it looks like also the field is progressing. Like we've got GPT-4 Turbo who is going to come out. So things are getting faster. But yeah, having something in, in milliseconds might be a limitation, but it might also not be what it means. Uh, yeah, exactly. What? Maybe you don't need it. I've talked yeah. to a guy at u.com who is a product engineer. His name was Sahil, I think. And he was saying how one thing that they do is instead of trying to make things go faster on the tech side, they just try and preoccupy the end user so it doesn't feel like it's going mm -hmm. as fast or as mm -hmm. slow as you would think. So it's uh, he called it something like you have the, the actual time that it takes and then mm -hmm. you have the subjective time that it takes. So if they do something like give you a quiz while you're waiting for the answer to come up, then before you know it, the answer is there and you were just having fun while you were trying to complete this quiz. So there may be some novel ways that we can figure out how to make it work with mm -hmm. this end user experience being a little bit different. But I, I think what I, what I was saying is if you're going to try and shove a large language model into a recommender use case, that might be a little bit hard to mm -hmm. see in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And I agree that the end user thinking about how to get the user in the loop is super important because I kind of see GenAI as a tool that augments the user. And so you also want, often you want the user input, for example, 
letting the user modify what um, the AI generates or interact with yeah. the AI to really get what they want or even what you mentioned, like doing something to let them wait and not feel like it's so long. I feel like the user in the loop is very important and particularly important with Gen AI apps. Yeah, and I do want to say something else that I think is fascinating when it comes to these large language models. And it's that I've had a lot of people on our podcast that have said, I was building a model for a year or six months. And then when ChatGPT came out and we started just hitting that API, we realized that it was performing better on every aspect. And I could just throw my model out the window and I, I allow OpenAI to deal with all those headaches. And so there are a lot of great use cases for these large language models or small la language models if you can figure that out when you optimize. And that is potentially another topic to go into is going from the prototype with OpenAI and then optimizing with something maybe in-house. But the the thing that i always found funny is how so many people have said yeah i was doing a lot of research and really focusing on making the best model i could and then you put it up against a chat gpt mm -hmm. or a gpt4 and it was worthless and so you now have this ability to just turn and say, all right, cool, I'm going to get up and running with GPT-4 as soon as possible. And those use cases, like I, I'm thinking about AngelList specifically, where they now can have this like sentiment analysis being run by GPT-4. And they can also pull out all these different places in these long contracts that are happening. And then they can correlate all that data for the investors and they're using mm. gpt4 and it took weeks to get that feature into production as opposed to what we all know is the painful part of machine learning where sometimes it can take months to actually mm -hmm. get something that's working a working prototype even yeah and i think like another topic that's quite discussed frequently is this general generalists vs specialists like mm. how is it going to look like in the future is it going to be one general model like basically gpt4 now or some are using bards but it's basically a few models that we're using for everything um or is it going to be lots of you know a special gen ai for healthcare a special gen ai for mm. video games what's your take on this where do you see this going in the future I feel like it's that, like the, again, I, I think that it's going to be these small language models that are very verticalized and are very experts in one or two domains. But I won't discount that something really special happens when you do get training with a lot of data. Mm -hmm. So I, I would feel like... It just makes a lot of business sense to have smaller models because it's so much easier to deal with. But then again, you never know what GPT-5 mm -hmm. is going to bring, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like if you're a startup, you kind of need to... It's very difficult to compete with GPT-4, so it's easier to try to get 
a specialist, something really good at a single or only a couple of tasks because competing against GPT-4 is very difficult. Now, is it going to be better than GPT-4? I'm not sure yet, actually. Yeah, and we saw that. It's funny you mentioned that because we did a whole large language models in production survey with the community, and then I wrote a report on it. And in that report, I called out something that is along those lines. And I didn't really make the best graph when it comes to trying to visualize the point that I wanted to make. But I will try and explain it here. And then if people want, they can go check out the report and see how horrible the visual is on it. Mm -hmm. So disclaimer, I'm not Gardner. Uh, (laughs) So don't expect magic or don't expect professionalism in any way, shape or form. I think there are a few typos still in the report, but we got something out there because what we saw was what you are saying, where we feel like startups in the survey, a disproportionate amount of startups said that they were not using OpenAI. And then once you got to the enterprises, like a thousand plus employees, they were not using OpenAI as much as the middle. So if it's from basically like 10 to 1,000, there were many more. And maybe it's because you don't necessarily think about, hey, this AI is my advantage. You're not creating an AI first tool. You're creating a tool that has a market, that Mm -hmm. has your product market fit, but you're adding AI features into it. And another theory is that when you're above 1,000 employees, you have a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. And if there's any kind of data that's going outside of your walled garden, if there's any kind of security, you've got all kinds of questions that need to be answered by so many different teams that it's easier to do it in-house. Yeah, super interesting, actually. And I think that kind of makes sense. And especially startups, like they want to build something special they want to kind of differentiate themselves and exactly if they build on top of open ai or chat gpt what if they build a cool, cool feature open ai can just copy them and they're they're yep. gone open in, ai in dev day <laughs> so yeah exactly the open ai apps so yeah quite an interesting field Let's yeah see. and I, one thing that wasn't really mentioned in that report but it's become very obvious over the last week and a half, right? Is that if you're building on top of OpenAI, you are very vulnerable because it is a Mm. single point of failure. And every SRE knows that that is a very bad sign. If all of a sudden they fire their CEO and then it turns into a research (laughs) institute again and they don't care about serving the 100 million users that they are building on top of this service then you're in a tough place you and your company are in a tough place so it is a little bit you see i think people are thinking about diversification a lot more than they were even just a week ago what are you talking about OpenAI would never <laughs> fire their ceo right? why would they do anything <laughs> like that that is crazy somebody told me yesterday they were like i want to sue open ai because they absolutely wasted my time for the last five days straight it all for nothing <laughs> well it was a cool cool movie to to watch god yeah <laughs> what a drama huh that's funny so i want to take those last 10 minutes to talk a bit more about the mlops community and what you're doing there 
Um, I know you've got a hard stop, but let's yeah try to get as much as we can on the MLOps community. The first thing is, what is this community? Um, yeah, what is yeah. it about? What are you doing? Can you give a, a brief intro for people who have never heard about it? Yeah, for sure. So the community it has... It's hard to say how many people we have now because there are so many people, but we've got all kinds of initiatives that are happening. One is we have a Slack workspace where people are hanging out, asking questions, getting answers, all that fun stuff, making connections, finding jobs, learning from one another. And there's about 19,000 people in there. So it's grown a lot in the last three years. Then we've got in-person meetups that are happening in over 37 cities. I think, as you mentioned before, from Australia to Africa to New York, all that fun stuff. And the cool thing about that is anyone who wants to lead their own city meetup, they can. We kind of took that decentralized model and said, let's give the community the say in this. And What's been awesome is seeing how people get involved and seeing how people want to bring different technical talks to their communities, their local communities. And so we've got that happening all around the world. Uh, I also run a podcast, as you mentioned, and then we have virtual meetups where we'll get together and either it's kind of like a workshop where you go through and learn something or you get to see different tools in action. And then we have in-person workshops, all that fun stuff in these local communities. And we've been starting to do virtual conferences that have been a pretty big success. So we did these LLMs in production conferences. And that is really one when LLMs took the world by storm, it, mm -hmm. there were still so many questions that were being asked. And I was asking basically, who's actually using these and what are you <laughs> using them for? And that's where that survey came from. The conference came from that. You know, we have had over like 20,000 people at the three different conferences that we've done. And we've had in the first one, we had over 40 speakers. In the second one, we had over 80 speakers. And so it's been a great excuse to get to hear from the best and the brightest out there on what they're doing and how they're doing it. And so that has been a blast for me too, because, you know, in the conferences, I don't know if you were at the last one, but I'll bust out the guitar in the breaks and then start singing along to prompts from the chat. And so I have a blast doing that. And then last but not least are these reports that we've been doing. Oh, and we have a blog too. And we are investing heavily in this next year on the courses. And so we mm -hmm. just started and we're doing it the same way, like decentralized. If there's somebody that feels like they have something to teach, we are giving the platform, the learning platform to the community. And so we have a board of advisors for the courses that basically can make sure that the courses are up to par and make sure that the topic that will be presented in the course is valuable to the community. And so we validate the course ideas and then we go and we create the courses. And so we've got a whole learning platform that's uh, in the works right now. We've got one course out, actually two courses, and we're working with five different course creators. So that's something fun for next year that we're really excited about. And then the newsletter, 
yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. And obviously, like, it's not me doing the majority of this. It's really the community that has come and said, all right, I'll take the newsletter and they'll go out and do some really cool stuff with that and also give a roundup of everything that happens in the community and the courses, the meetups, et cetera, et cetera. What's a community exactly? Why why is that different than other things? Uh, so I was talking to somebody about this the other day. And for me, one thing that is very clear and it is contrary to what my ego would like to think is that people do not come into the MLOps community because of me right? And so I'm just part of the community. It's not like I am this YouTube creator that says, hey, I got this Discord channel and then we come. And if I, the YouTube creator, do not drive that community, in quotation marks, then it kind of dies out. For this, I'm just one of the rest. I am no, I, I would say that at least. And when you look at that versus what you mentioned, I, I think people make the difference and they say one is an audience. So it's like one person speaking to many people mm -hmm. and a community is more where it is many people speaking to many people. And so if I go to Greece for two weeks in the summer, like I do, when I come back, there's more content that has been created by the community than if I were to have hung out and stayed around. Okay, okay, I see. So it's many people taking part and it also, it lets people take initiatives as well. As you mentioned, if they want to organize a meetup or drive something somewhere in the world, people yeah. can take this initiative and organize things. Yeah, and that's what I see my role as, is just giving the community a platform to do cool things and encouraging them and also supporting them. How can we support the community to do cool stuff, right? That's all I care about. Somebody comes to me and they say, hey, I got this great idea to do X, Y, Z. I'm going to figure out a way to empower them to drive that. And if, it, if something comes out of it, that's incredible. That's amazing. If it doesn't, then okay, we know there's a data point for next time if somebody comes with that same idea. Well, I'm going to share a link in the description. As you mentioned, I had a look at your website. You're doing so many things. Um, <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, I knew the meetups, the podcast, but I didn't know about newsletter, blogs, and courses even. I, I saw you have a few courses on LLM, it looks like. Um, surprising topic at the moment. Um, didn't expect a course on this. Of course. Uh, of course. Oh, <laughs> um, good old LLM ops is hot. It's very hot right now. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool topic. Cool, cool discussion. Um, so yeah, gonna share this on the description. But thanks so much. Um, actually, before we finish, let me just ask a last question. If you had yeah. one advice for people to progress in their career, make it short, but one one advice. What what would it be? Dude, I think this one's very obvious to me these days, and it is get good at writing. Because if you can inspire and affect change through a document that you've written, and all of a sudden you influence 10 engineers to do things, then 
you have infinite leverage. If you can write well so that people understand you and they are able to do things faster, now you can go so fast and so far. And so that is one thing. Uh, I fought against it for a while, but any good product manager or product engineer knows the power of writing. And so I think now I am a gigantic advocate of that is where you get a lot of delta is in the writing and the power of writing. Well, Demetrius, thank you so much. It was great to learn from you, learn about MLOps, LLMOps, and the MLOps community. Have a great day, a great weekend, and hope to catch up very soon. It's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on here. Thank you.